as we open the word together this morning. Let's pray with the psalmist. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. And so, Father, speak to us now through your word. May the Holy Spirit who wrote these words open our hearts, our minds, move our wills, accomplish the work that, that only he has the ability to accomplish inside of us. Transform us, we pray, for your glory and because of Christ. Amen. Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ is in attendance here this morning. Imagine he arrived early and sat in the back. And for the past 25 minutes, he's been walking around the room, listening to us sing and pray. And is even now peering into our hearts. I wonder, would he find us prepared to take communion? Or does he know that some of us have walked in this morning quite flippantly or in a state of life in which we have dug our heels in with rebellion or we have carelessly ignored his word. I wonder if he would see that we walked in this morning as we would walk into a building any other day of the week. Your imagination of the Lord's presence is actually not fiction but it is based upon biblical truth. The last book of the Bible, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, begins with a description of the glorified Lord Jesus. The Apostle John describes him this way. He is clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze in a furnace. 
and his voice was like the roar of many waters. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when John saw the Lord Jesus this way, he fell down. He saw that he was unworthy to worship this God. But when John saw Jesus in this vision, Jesus was not far away. He was not off in the distance. He was in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which later are identified as the seven churches of Asia Minor. As Jesus commanded John to send a message to each church, he told him exactly what to write. He told him what specifically to commend in the churches and also how to rebuke them. And he could do this because the Son of God knew everything, saw everything, and heard everything. But if I'm correct, the conscious awareness of his presence among us probably does not exist most of the time. And yet it's true. Through the Holy Spirit, whom he sent, Jesus is present here with us today in this place. And all of this brings to our mind a consistent pattern in Scripture, and that is that God cares how we worship. More than that, we see when his people willfully ignore his commands, God is not pleased and he takes action. Let me give you just three examples, two from the Old Testament and one from the New. Think of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest, who, when entering the holy place, offered what the Bible calls strange fire or unauthorized sacrifices. And in offering those, those unauthorized sacrifices and that strange fire to the Lord, they offended the holiness of God and were immediately struck dead as fire came down from heaven. Think of Uzzah, who, who was just trying to help when, when he touched the Ark of the Covenant as it was falling off the wagon, as it was being transported, and immediately he was struck dead for touching what God said, no man may touch. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira, the husband and wife team of fraud who deceived the apostles about how much money they were giving to the offering. And within three hours, both of them had dropped dead in the presence of the apostles. In an instant, their hearts stopped beating. 
And from all of those examples, one thing is really, really clear, and that is that God cares about how we worship. He cares about the condition of our heart. He cares about our response to his word. He cares how we approach him. But this goes beyond our offerings, our singing, our praying, and our listening to his word. It even encompasses how we take communion. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you'll open your Bibles there, if you haven't already. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Why did the apostle say that? Why did he write those words? Well, the early church practiced something called love feasts. They were a little bit like our fellowship meals. It was a common meal to show brotherly love and also for rich believers to provide for the poor. And these love feasts were then closed with the taking of communion or the practice of the Lord's Supper. And sadly, in Corinth, these love feasts were being treated as something that was just flippant and casual, not sacred, They became an opportunity for some to engage even in carnality. And as a result, the sacredness of the communion was lost and God's holiness was trampled upon and God himself was offended. God was so grieved by their abuses that some members of the church were even being put to death. Therefore, the Apostle Paul was forced to address this issue. In in this passage before us this morning, there is one big overarching idea, and that is this. God takes communion seriously, and therefore so should we. And since God cares how we take communion, we must be careful to prepare ourselves for this mandated element of public worship. I want you to see in today's scripture that the apostle gives four directives to us. Number one, we must repent of the sins which harm Christian community. We must repent of the sins which cause damage to our Christian community, which then ends up causing damage to the testimony of the Lord. Look at what Paul says, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. He referred to this in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he he addresses the Corinthians. He commends them for the evidence of 
of God's grace that he does see in their lives and in their church, but then he immediately rebukes them, drawing attention to the fact that there are many divisions among them. There was quarreling in the church about which of their leaders was the better preacher. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. Others said, no, I follow Peter. And then the super spiritual one said, no, no, I follow Jesus. And they were quarreling. There were even lawsuits among members of the church. Divorce was spreading Because of that and the immorality that was in people's lives, there was argument as to what was better. Was it better to be married or was it better to remain single? There was conflict over food. Do we eat food that's been offered to idols or not? There was conflict over male and female roles in church. There were all kinds of divisions there in the church at Corinth. And so Paul says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That is a mysterious verse. What God is saying is that that he sometimes uses conflict in church to weed out false believers and therefore and thereby to cause those who are affirmed by him to be recognized. As wretchedly painful and sinful and grievous as conflicts are in churches. Paul says, sometimes these factions are necessary in order to prove who is genuine. God, of course, is the one to navigate through all that mystery. But there were not only divisions, but they were indulging themselves in fleshly sins. When you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You've not come together to celebrate this this feast of glory to God. No, you've gone ahead and and you've turned it into a gluttonous, drunkenness, self-indulgent celebration. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, verse 21. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. church was guilty of fleshly sins of self-indulgence. And and even when they gathered together and they, they brought food to the love feast, food that was supposed to be shared, those who had a lot were just gorging themselves and leaving nothing for the poor. 
They were drinking themselves drunk. In other parts of the book, you see other forms of fleshly self-indulgence, greed and immorality and stealing. Paul says, it can't be this way. It must not be this way. When you come to the Lord's table, you must repent of these divisions. You must repent of your factious spirit. You must repent of these fleshly sins of self-indulgence, which harm the Christian community and then harm the Christian testimony. There's a second command. Not only to repent, but also to remember. Number two, remember the seriousness of the divine ordinance. Remember that communion is serious business. Remember that that it's a divine ordinance. What that means is it has been given to us by God. It's an ordinance that we have received from the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord, Paul says, what what I've given to you, what I've commanded you concerning the the practice of the Lord's table is, is not my idea. No, no, this is from the Lord. I received it from the Lord, and therefore then I delivered it to you. What then is this ordinance all about? Well, it's all about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's a visual picture of the work of Christ for us as sinners. I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you do this, Jesus was saying, remember me. That's what this is about. This is about remembering Christ. This is about remembering that he gave himself for our sins. This is about remembering his, the humility of the Son of God to leave the glories of heaven and come to this earth and take upon himself human flesh so that there would be a body to nail to the cross. In the same way, verse 25, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, not only remember my body, remember my humanity, but remember my blood, remember my sacrifice. Don't ever forget the price that it cost to purchase your salvation. That's what God is saying to us through, through communion. He is saying, remember that salvation is free to you, but it was not free to Jesus. It cost him everything to purchase rebels to adopt into the family of God. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the 
another purpose of, of the Lord's table is, is proclamation, not only remembrance, but proclamation that through, through communion, we are proclaiming the gospel. It's a visual sermon. We are preaching that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took upon himself our sins. He was crucified in our place. He was buried. Three days later, he was raised. This is the good news of the gospel, that all those who turn from their sin and believe in this Savior are forgiven. But there's a warning Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What a sobering verse that is. That if we as believers treat the Lord's table flippantly. We do not remember Christ as he demands to be remembered. And we don't look into our own hearts and and evaluate our own spiritual condition. And we don't look at our own lives and evaluate what sins need to be repented of. Then, Then we are taking the Lord's Table in what Paul calls an unworthy manner. He doesn't define that, which I'm, I'm glad for. I'm glad that he doesn't say, well, an unworthy manner means these four things. Boom, 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 boom. And then, because our tendency then would to be to create a checklist. And we would create that checklist, and this morning in the car on the way here, we would go over that checklist to make sure that we were not going to partake in an unworthy manner. But the very fact that it's not defined for us leaves it open to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our hearts. Is there sin that God has been convicting you of that you refuse to turn from? Is there unresolved conflict in your life with fellow brothers and sisters and you you refuse to either take the first move, take the first step toward the resolution, or you refuse to respond to the one who is taking the first step? This is an unworthy practice. Or perhaps last Sunday, the Lord convicted you of restitution, financial material restitution of some sort that you are to make to someone, and you've said all week, nah, 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 nah. Are you going to come here today and take part in this in an unworthy manner? Paul says, don't. Don't do that. Remember the seriousness of this ordinance. Number three, review your own heart and your own life. Evaluate your own soul before God. Inspect your own life, comparing it to the Word of God. Let a person examine himself Verse 28 says, this is required preparation 
for the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul's saying, don't take communion if your heart is not right with God. Do not take communion if you have not done everything you can to be right with other believers. And by the way, notice what Paul says, examine himself, let a person examine himself. See, the Lord's uh, table is not the time for you to be examining everybody else around you. There is a time and a place for the church to do that. It's called church discipline, and that's why historically churches that practice church discipline then will bar the person who is unrepentant from taking communion. So that does happen in the life of a church. But but Paul's saying, first and foremost, look at your own heart. Hold up the Bible that you hold in your hands right now in front of your face and say, this is the mirror by which I must look at myself. Because we don't want to take part in an unworthy manner. This, this is the practice of what we might call self-examination. It's, it's what uh, David referred to in Psalm 26. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Or in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my hearts. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any hurtful way in me. Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 13 says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. This morning isn't the time to be looking to your left and to your right and and in front of you and behind you to determine whether or not someone else should be taking communion. This morning is the time for you to be looking in your own heart. And why is this so important? Because Paul says to neglect self-examination might lead to judgment. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, If we judge our own hearts, our own lives, based upon the word of God, and we see what in our lives needs to change and we repent, then Paul says, then then we won't be judged. But then even when we are judged by the Lord, verse 32, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's a wonderful truth in that verse that God's judgment of a believer is different than his judgment of an unbeliever. God's judgment of a believer leads to discipline, which is corrective and restorative. God, God's not pushing us away. God's saying, he's saying, repent, and he's drawing us closer like a faithful parent will do 
in the discipline of his child. It won't send him away. Go to your bedroom for the next three hours. That's how God punishes unbelievers. But the faithful parent will say, what did you do wrong? What does God think of this? Discipline, correction will be brought to bear upon the situation in order to draw the child back into close fellowship. See, that's the difference between what we might call parental discipline from the Lord and judging that leads to condemnation. But if the Lord disciplines us, he does so so that we will not be condemned along with the world. See, the, the fatherly discipline of God toward those who are believers is an affirmation that we belong to him. It's evidence of our relationship to him. And then finally, number four. Respect others more than you respect yourself. How, how do we take communion? We esteem others as more important than ourselves. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Remember, you rebuked them earlier about how they were gorging themselves and not waiting to for all to share in the feast. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. What those other things are, we don't know. There are obviously more things that the apostle needed to address there in the church. So how do we apply this scripture? Well, I think it's pretty self-evident, isn't it? We must apply this scripture by taking time for self-examination. Before we do that, before we have a time of silence uh, before the Lord, let me just ask you some questions that might Stimulate your conversation with God. Is your heart prepared to take communion today? Do, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know God through faith in Christ? Are you trusting in him alone? Or are you trusting in yourself and your own goodness or your own religion? This is what uh, the free church historically has referred to as fencing the table. In other words, there's a fence around this communion table. And you know what a fence does. A fence keeps some in while saying others are out. And what fencing the table means is communion is for believers. Believers. It's for those who 
are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for those who, who know the Lord and understand the gospel, and, and that's why, as a parent, I don't allow my children to take communion. It has to be until they're older, and, and I can know for sure that, that I've had time to walk through the gospel with them sufficiently, that, that they understand what this is all about, because I don't want my kids taking communion in an unworthy manner. Is there sin that you need to confess? Are you divisive? Are you guilty of sins that contribute to division, gossip and slander and all those kinds of things? Is there pride in your heart? Is there, is there an unresolved conflict that, that you refuse to deal with? You've stubbornly dug in your, in your heels and said, no way am I going to be the first one to make that phone call. You know your life. You know your heart. And I simply call upon you to examine it this morning. And so, Father, now as we enter these minutes of quietness before you, we do so for the purpose of judging our own hearts And so with the psalmist, we say, Lord, examine me. We say, Lord, search me. Show me. If there's anything in my heart or my life that I've not brought to you for cleansing, that would be a hindrance to the fellowship this morning. Guide us in these moments of silence for Jesus' sake. Father, we come to you in in Jesus' name. That is, we come through his shed blood as the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. You have said in your word, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Lord, as the snow falls upon the Cleveland area today, we are so reminded of how pure and holy you are. But also, Lord, of how thoroughly you cleanse us when we repent and we confess our sins to you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your word that if we we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, to cleanse us, because you are righteous, you are just, because Jesus is righteous, because he is the one who died in our place and has risen and is now ascended 
on high, seated at your right hand, always interceding for us. Oh, what, what a treasure it is to know that, Lord. The Son of God who saved us is even now interceding for us. God, we praise you for giving us communion as this ongoing reminder of the work of the Lord Jesus. God, thank you for urging us in your word today to view this as something that is very important to you and must be, therefore, important to us. And we approach you now, and we approach the table now, having looked into our hearts and having confessed to you all that we can think of, all that we're conscious of. We deliberately come to your table wanting to partake in a worthy manner, in a way that gives you glory. So bless our fellowship around this remembrance for the glory of our Savior. Amen.